Welcome to Byline Confidential, a podcast where we talk with journalists about their lives, their work, and their careers. I'm Greg Pratt, reporter in Chicago, and I will tell you right out, I am a man who likes to talk to a man or woman who likes to talk. This week we're talking to Brian Gruley, a reporter at Bloomberg who does fascinating stories, most recently on elderly sex and some of the issues that have arisen in nursing homes where people get together and someone has Alzheimer's and it becomes a problem of consent and a problem for families and for nursing homes and it's a pretty interesting subject that is not going away anytime soon. Brian's been in the news business for more than three decades. He's done a lot of interesting stories. He was at the Wall Street Journal when 9-11 happened and we talk about covering that. I very much enjoyed talking with him and I think you'll enjoy this week's episode and if you do, please consider subscribing on iTunes for the high price of nada. But for now, Enjoy the talk. So we're sitting here. You're Brian Gruley. I am. Right for you're Greg Pratt. That's right. I needed the reminder. Um, and uh, you know, I appreciate you taking some time to chat with me. Sure, happy to be here. And I'll sort of jump right into to the interesting thing, which is you've been writing a lot about old people having sex and how that can be yeah. a problem. Yeah. Uh, how'd you get on that? Um. A year, almost two years ago now, the early the early part of 2013, the editors at Bloomberg News decided uh, to try to do a series of stories about the aging of the baby boom generation and how that population bubble would affect society, culture, the economy, finances, etc. And uh, I was asked to be part of this project, and my editor, John Brecher, asked me, what would I like to do? And I said off the top of my head, sex, because I realized I knew very little about it. And part of the reason I knew very little about it is it's not written, elderly sex is not written about very much because, um, for lack of a better word, it's yucky to most people. And so I started researching it. I had no idea what my angle was going to be. So does that mean you have a lot of like really interesting Google searches or something? I probably do, yes, and I get some interesting Google ads. At least I did last last year when I was first initially researching that subject, and all, and all I knew was old people and sex. And I tripped over, there was a paragraph in something I read about a case in King County, Washington, where a woman in her 90s who had Alzheimer's uh, accused a man of raping her. He was a gardener. He was he was a friend of hers. And the prosecutor there decided they couldn't bring the case because they only had two witnesses. One, one denied it, and the other one had Alzheimer's. But it raised the question, um, in my mind, of when does somebody who has dementia uh, lose the ability to consent to sex? And so I did a number of stories on that subject last year. And then uh, I moved on to other things in 2014. But in August, a gentleman in Iowa, in northern Iowa, named Henry Rehans, a legislator and farmer, was arrested for uh, having sex with his wife who had dementia. This is a criminal sexual assault charge rape. And when it appeared on the wires 
a couple of my colleagues sent me the link and said, hey, isn't this your beat? And so I started looking into it, and there was a fascinating um, and tragic story there about Henry Rehans, uh, who, was a, who was a widower who married a widow, Donna Lou Young, late in life, and had this tremendous romance. She got dementia, wound up in a nursing home, and then one night in May, uh, he was visiting her and upset the roommate, and the roommate reported that they may have had sex, and uh, a couple months later he was arrested and charged with rape. So his trial is next year. It's scheduled for January. Do you think it's going to go to trial? Probably. Yeah, I think the prosecution's pretty confident that they have a case. I think the defense is equally confident that they will win. Um, they have to... The prosecution has to prove two things. First, that there was a sex act. If they can't prove that, then the case goes away. But let's assume they can prove that. Then they have a very difficult challenge, which is to prove that Donna had a mental defect that made her unable to decide whether or not she wanted sex. And when you get into that area of Alzheimer's and dementia, Alzheimer's being one prominent form of dementia, you know, people assume that some people who don't know much about it, and certainly I did before I got into the subject, that it's sort of a black and white thing, an on-off switch. It's really more of a dimmer switch, and it comes in and out. People who uh, are out of it in the morning um, can, uh, can be perfectly lucid in the afternoon for an hour, and then go back and back and forth, and then you get around to you know making decisions. Um, and functionality, you know, making functional decisions. Somebody who can't, say, balance their checkbook might nevertheless have the ability to say, yes, I want to have that appendectomy because I know I'm going to die if I don't have it. Right. So I'll make a decision about that. And, and sex uh, is, you know, obviously a primal desire and need. Uh, some experts, you know, liken it to food. That's what I was going to say. There's a line in your story about that, right? Right. There's a quote from a, a geriatric psychiatrist in, in uh, Washington State. And it, it's uh, experts, geriatric and other experts, believe that intimacy from just a simple touch all the way to intercourse can help people with dementia feel less lonely in their you know, isolation. Touch, after all, is usually the last sense to go. You know, you can, your sight goes, your smell goes, your, your hearing goes, and you can still touch, and it, you know, it connects you to other human beings. Um, but sex, at the same time, uh, particularly in the United States of America, is all bound up in people's personal values and what they think, how they think others sh- should behave. And, uh, you know, we, I, I guess we think of ourselves sometimes as a very permissive society because of what we see on television and movies and such. But Kim Kardashian but, and whatnot? Yeah, but we're, I don't believe that's true. I, think we're, I mean, Europeans will say it, um, the same thing. As we're not a very permissive society. We have difficulty with sex, which may be why we project it in such spectacular ways in the harm, in the, you know, the relatively harmless venues of, you know, the TV and Hollywood and the media. Well, in this in this case that you wrote about, this most recent case, uh, 
it seems like um well from reading it it seems like it's the daughters who sort of of the of, uh, of Miss Young right who seem to have a problem with the idea that she might have sex well the um the daughters uh, her two of her three daughters were involved in the investigation of Henry Ray Hines by the state and they, um, I believe, were genuinely concerned for their mother's well-being prior to sex being introduced. And as they moved her into a nursing home in late March, and I think they, well, I know they became concerned about whether her husband, Henry Rayhans, was having sex with her when perhaps she was not mentally able to say yes or no. Um, the state in one of its filings has compared her in effect to an eight-year-old boy. Of course, they have to prove this. She is, until they prove otherwise, well, she's dead now, I'm sorry, but um, as, a, as a part of the case, she is a 78-year-old woman with the capacity to consent until they prove otherwise. And I think that'll be difficult to prove, but I don't think it's impossible. Sure. Um... She she passed away. I know that's in your story. Uh, what last year or something? No, she passed away um, in August. August eighth, okay. earlier this year. Yes. So it's uh, um, what's driving the prosecutors to continue the case? Well, I you know I I don't know except that all I can do is assume that they believe a crime was committed, and they have evidence. They say they have evidence that uh, a, you know, a confession, a witness, and um, DNA testing that they say shows that Henry Rayhans had sex with his wife when he knew or was to, had been told that she didn't have the ability to consent. So I don't want to ascribe any nefarious motives to the prosecution. Me neither. It's, it's been suggested um, in Iowa that maybe... There are some political motivations because uh, Henry Rayhans happens to be a Republican legislator and the Attorney General happens to be a Democrat, but I don't buy that. Um, it, it just doesn't add up. Henry Rayhans, um, by all accounts, was a fine legislator, but he wasn't a kingmaker. He's not a serious player in the Iowa legislator, legislature. And up in uh, his district... You could run just about anybody as a Republican, and they're going to win. So it wasn't like they're going to try to knock him out. So I don't. I've heard this political thing, and I don't believe it. And sure. We, and we uh, didn't even mention it in our story. The, yeah, no, I, I don't. Think so, that was but but going, it's a good question. What, what motivates what prosecutors? Uh, you know, generally speaking, they're motivated by they see a criminal, they think committed a crime, they think they have evidence to bring a case, so they bring cases. I'm not going to describe any other motives to them other than that. So your story, if, I, if I'm if i recalling it correctly, sort of starts with the courtship, right? Like you write about the courtship right. of, uh, right. of Henry and uh, Donna. Don. Right. And, uh, and it's a very sweet courtship, isn't it? It is. And, by, you know, by all accounts, the people I talk with, they, uh, they sort of knew each other um, before they started courting. Um, but not not very well. Henry actually knew Donna's husband, Slim, um, 
uh, years ago, he used to do some business with him in the farming world. And Slim died in um, 2000 or 2001. I have to look at this story. And then Henry's wife, uh, first wife of 40-some years, uh, died in 2006. And Henry and Donna got to know each other singing in the choir at church the following summer. And they started dating. And they got married in November, or excuse me, December of 2007. So they were together about seven years? Yes. Yeah, they, yeah, they were... It would have been seven years this week, you know, December, when we're talking. Was that, um, and so what are they both about 70 when they meet? When they, yeah, they were in their early 70s when they, when they met. Because she was 78 when she died, right? She, yes, she died four days short of her 79th birthday. She was buried on her 79th birthday. And so she was a little bit older than Henry, not much. So that and and that that part of that part's not really an issue, right? That they liked and cared about each other. No, not that I know of. I mean, if if there's some evidence um, to that, I I didn't see it. Right. I and I haven't heard it um, from anybody. But you know, there were tensions not between Henry and Donna so much, but uh, tensions uh, that arose quite naturally, I think, in situations like this. Um, having seen it in my own family, not dementia-related, but care-related. So tensions between um, Henry Rahans and Donna's two daughters, who you know, were rightfully concerned about care for their mother as her dementia worsened. I think in the story there's a mention of an incident where he had some meeting and left her in a room or something, right? There, there were allegations that he, um, which he, he denies that... He um, left her alone when he was in meetings, and these these allegations made by some people who were in the Capitol gave her daughter her daughter's concern. And so, uh, you know, whether whether they're founded or not, um, hard for me to tell. But they gave the daughters some concern, and again. Uh, I don't. I certainly don't want to judge them for being worried about their mom. Sure. I mean, I think they loved her. So. No, sure, but it's it's um, one of the things you know. There there are so many interesting things about this and your other stories about um, boomer sex and nursing homes and dementia. Uh, most of which is that you you never read about love stories in papers anyway. You know, like like it's very unusual. Celebrity love stories we read about constantly. Well, yeah, but I just something came just came up on my phone this morning about um, uh, what's his name, the singer dancer, fellow <laughs> singer dancer uh, Jessica Biel and uh, uh, he's t- Justin Timberlake. The there you go. They're going to have a baby. I mean, celebrity, uh, you know, celebrity romance, such as it is, sure, it never seems to last very long. Um, is we're fascinated with that. We're fascinated with romance among royalty. Sure. Um, but go ahead. But but you know that's still not quite what I'm talking about. You know, like like there was a nice paparazzi story I saw about uh, Jennifer Lawrence. Um, you know the actress, of course, uh, ordering pizza at the house of her new boyfriend, who's a director or something. Which you know that's not really much of a love story. That's just that's just people being fascinated with right, right. Like uh, but. 
But in this case, you're sort of mixing... You're, I mean, you're writing about deep relationships and how they get complicated by time, age, and, and sickness. Right. Which is... Which is uh, and dementia in particular, which is a sickness which makes people different. Sure, which alters I mean, your identity and right. how people... I mean, all, I mean, all diseases, all serious disease alters, alters people in profound ways. But dementia in particular, you know, people... Uh, there's there's no evidence of it in this particular story, at least in the uh, the time around the alleged rape. But, you know, people, you know, they don't recognize people they loved. And I, I've never experienced it personally. Uh, my own parents are both dead now, um, a few years. And they didn't... Neither of them had dementia that I know of. They certainly were pretty much all there until the end. But I have plenty of friends and relatives who've encountered it and it's you know, it's devastating to everybody involved. It's it's very difficult. But it's it's gonna be a problem in greater numbers just because of the fact that people from my generation, the baby boomers, are about to swell into this huge population bubble and you have people who live longer because physically we're we're healthier, and we have drugs that help prolong our lives, generally speaking. So, you're going to have more people with Alzheimer's and dementia. Sure. Well, so, but you've got these, um, uh, you know, when you wrote about it the first time, you know, you wrote about, I think it was like three stories, right? That's right. And the third one was about a nursing home in New York that that actually does sort of have a proactive approach to understanding this, right? That's right. The like, Hebrew home at Riverdale, New York, which is uh, uh, up north. Uh, uh, I'm not sure. I think it is in the Bronx, but it's quite a bit north of Manhattan. And it is a uh, very progressive in its approach to uh, sexual relations between their residents where they actually have a written policy that encourages consensual sex among residents, including those with dementia. And they train their people to, um, you know, abet these intimate relationships, to get people privacy, to help them have intimate relationships. At the same time, they train them to watch for signs that maybe something's not consensual for one or both partners where you know like you can if somebody's eating or toilet or other habits change in significant ways something might be upsetting them if they have dementia so they're trained to, to look into that but it's a it's a we favor sex approach to the point that even where a family might say we don't want our mother or our father we don't want our father having sex with that woman from, you know, room 3B. And if the home believes that it's consensual and that it's good for them, they uh, are willing to tell the family, we're sorry, we're not going to step in here. Now, uh, that could get you into litigious situations, or they might yank somebody out of the home. I, I don't know if that's happened. I don't think they've had litigation yet, but, you know, that's a tricky situation, but they also train families in this to why they think it's important. And people go in there with their eyes open. It's not a secret that's sprung on them after they 
put their person in there, and uh, it's not a cheap home either. So sure, they're not really a beautiful place. They're not pretending that old people don't have sex though, or don't want no. to have sex. No, they're not. Which uh, it seems like a lot of places do. From from what I remember of your first stories, which I read a while ago. It you know it's it is a very difficult thing for um, nursing homes. To be fair to them, I mean they're they have a lot to do on um, resources that have dwindled in the last ten or twenty years. You know, Medicare and Medicaid are their primary sources of revenue, and they have to keep people safe and keep them as healthy and keep them fed and keep them from falling down and etc. I mean, they have a lot to do. And then this is, is is another thing. And, of course, a lot of those people, I, I don't know the average age of a nursing home worker, but I'll bet most of them are quite a bit younger than uh, the people they're taking care of. And they bring their own personal, religious, cultural, social uh, presuppositions to the sex act. And... Um, at least when I was writing a year ago, most of those people don't get any training in this. They just deal with it as as it comes about. Very few homes have any sort of policy that addresses sex directly, including the home in the Henry Rayon's story. Um, very few homes have policies like the Hebrew home has. Sure. Which, you know, maybe would be good for places to have, right? Well, um, it's not mine to judge. Uh, but as the numbers grow of of people over the age of 65 and they keep having sex and more of them have dementia, you can deal with it proactively or you can deal with it when the lawyers show up or the cops show up. Um, and in, in uh, some cases, it'll be a big problem for the nursing home. The one I wrote about last year the administrator was fired. The director of nursing was fired. Um, these people were humiliated in public. As it turned out, they were later uh, acquitted, in effect. Not in a court of law, but in the regulatory arena. But, you know, that was a sad story for them. They did what they thought was right. Um, when this case, in, in, in the most recent case, we're sort of dealing with a family situation that's playing itself out in a criminal court, right? With... You know, like husband, wife, somebody reports it, it becomes a criminal issue. And then in the the other story, which was also in Iowa, right? Yeah, as it happens, it's uh, coincidental. Um, hopefully, coincidental. Uh, they, you know, that that's an issue that never became criminal, right? That was just uh, um, regulatory. There, I'm working from memory here, Greg. Uh, there was a brief consideration of a criminal case against somebody and it was dropped if if memory serves it didn't figure that, that, that was primarily a civil regulatory sure. uh, situation there was a there was a private lawsuit filed and uh, against the nursing home and uh, but the but the main body of what happened there was dealt with in the regulatory arena the state agencies that oversee well, tell me a little bit, a bit about that case or what you remember. That was uh, two uh, patients. I almost called them inmates. Yeah. Uh, two patients fall in love. Uh, no, not really. That, that, that 
story really had nothing to do with love, as far as I could tell or anybody would say. They were, uh, and, and it happened, the sex act, which definitely happened in this case at uh, Windmill Manor in Coralville, Iowa, which is a suburb of Iowa City, where the University of Iowa is. Uh, this happened, f- well, be five years ago now, so 2009, and it involved an 87-year-old woman who had dementia and a 78-year-old man who had slightly milder dementia, and they were found having sex. They didn't know each other very well. The man um, was divorced. The woman was still married to somebody on the outside. They were found having sex. They alerted the families. Uh, The uh, administrator had to make a decision then based on the law as to whether he would report this as potential abuse to state authorities. And he decided after consulting some experts that this was a consensual act and he didn't report it. And several months later, you know, the following year, 2010, authorities were investigating, the regulators were investigating something else at the home and they heard about this SX Act. So then they started an investigation of that and the administrator got fired, the director of nursing got fired, other people had to leave the home. Uh, By the time the story played itself out, by the time it went through the regulatory uh, process, it took three and a half years. By then, both people were dead, both the people involved. Uh, The families, were obviously impacted by this, but not so much as as the uh, the two people who were among or were among the administrators at this nursing home. And as I said, the regulatory process eventually acquitted the administrator, said he did the right thing. And by then, the director of nursing was gone as well. So that was sad. Um, the administrator, whose name is Steve Drobot, I spoke with him. And he really missed working with elderly people. He's, at least when I spoke with him a year ago, and I believe he's still there, he's um, managing a, a pediatrics clinic somewhere in Iowa. And uh, seemed, seemed happy with that, but he really missed working with elderly people. That's too bad. I was wondering if that destroyed his career, you know, in medicine or... No, I don't. He, he wasn't a doctor. Steve's not a... Uh, a physician. He was an administrator. Right, 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 right. But he really enjoyed, I mean, he'd done it his whole life, and he worked in nursing homes, or assisted living facilities, I forget exactly what, but working with elderly people, and he liked that. So, you know, he still has a career. Um, he's, he's a respected guy, and you know, who knows, maybe he'll end up back in elderly care again. The, um, I think, and the, what was it, the director of nursing who also lost their job? Yes, Karen Edder. Was it her that was... And, and I might be completely misremembering if I'm just say so, you know, but mm-hmm. was there somebody who was, like, really badly impacted by that, or...? Well, she was, because... I thought it was her. She lost her license, so she couldn't be a nurse anymore. And that's... That was her livelihood. So, um, she ended up doing daycare. Uh, and, you know, I think she lost her car... And she may have lost her apartment because she couldn't rent and had to 
live with one of her daughters, I believe. I, again, I'm, I'm doing this from memory. I haven't reread that story in a long time. So. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, her life was seriously impacted by this. And, and it was all, you know, at, the, at, at its heart, these people's lives were affected because of uh, the question of when can somebody with dementia uh, lose or, or have the ability to consent to sex. Well, and these are uh, obviously very interesting stories. Uh, what kind of feedback are you getting? And did you get? Oh, well, on the first story, um, we got enormous feedback, uh, partly because uh, the Drudge Report picked it up. And so it went semi-viral on the web. Uh, but it was... Um, it what, what, what headline did they use? Did they put a sign on it? I honestly don't remember. <laughs> um, it's the first and only time in my career that I've been picked up by drugs that I know of. Um, I don't think I've been picked up another time in one of my stories. Uh, this time, um, it I wouldn't say it went viral, but it got thousands of shares on Twitter and Facebook. And then my, I got a lot of email. And it was very emotional response to the story. And I think because, and, and no disrespect meant to the people in the earlier case, but here you have um, two people who are in love, which is going to resonate with a lot of readers, um, and one of them is now, you know, this case is just beginning. The other case was over. Right. And everyone had moved on. So at least you had some closure there. This case is live, and Henry Rahans is facing the possibility of going to prison for 10 years. Um, you know, that might not happen if he's convicted. Maybe the judge will, or the jury, I don't know what exactly the sentencing uh, strictures are here, but this is a live story where um, it, 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 it could turn in a number of different directions, and I think that engages readers much more and the response I've gotten has been very emotional including from older people who have written about their own experiences to me in rather intimate ways about and how uh, I'd say among the older people who've who've identified themselves as older I got I got an email two days ago from an 88 year old man um, that, that generally speaking their attitude is that young people, need to understand take more pains uh, to understand older people and by younger I don't buy, he's not he doesn't mean just 20 and 30 something sure. he's talking about people my age you know in their late 50s and I sympathize with that you know uh, so it's it's been a very emotional response and which which means you know it's it's that kind of story, and hopefully we told it well enough to elicit that. Do you have any idea if, because um, I, I, I imagine it's being covered in, in um, Iowa, where it's it happening. Is. yep. Uh, I imagine that whatever's been coverage is probably not as in-depth as what you did, because, you know, what you did was the full thing. Well, the, the papers then, the papers there, uh, the local papers, have done a really good job of covering um you know, the twists and turns of the case thus far. Uh, not a lot has happened in the public eye. 
And I, I just, uh, because of my uh, past writing about this, uh, my editors were willing to give me the time sure. and uh, the resources, you know, to do a to do a fuller story. And so I've I've been in Iowa four times since since uh, early September, and uh, it's a beautiful country. But have you got feedback from the uh, prosecutors or anything like that? Well, yeah, the prosecutors, um, they didn't like our story. They uh, had filed earlier, uh, maybe a month ago, November 20th, I think it was. I, I could have my dates mixed up. But at some point in October or November, they filed for a change of venue, which is pretty rare for prosecutors to file. Usually it's defendants who say, we're not going to be able to get a fair trial here. We right. can't panel a fair jury. Well, in this case, the prosecutors decided they couldn't, and they cited coverage by um, the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Des Moines Register and some of the other uh, TV radio stations in the area as being uh, prejudicial to the defendant, Henry Rehines, and said, we need to have this moved. So then uh, our story ran in uh, the Des Moines Register two Sundays ago, or was it last last Sunday? I, and so the day it came out in, on Bloomberg, Bloomberg.com, and then again, after it ran in the register, the prosecutors filed documents with the court saying the story was misleading and had untruths in legal and factual matters, and it's one more reason to move the case out of Northern Iowa. And so, uh, actually, there was a court hearing on this two days ago, and I was there in Garner, Iowa. And it, it, it wasn't a long or terribly contentious court hearing. Uh, they just said they should move the, uh, the judge should move the case to far eastern or far western Iowa, where they think they could get a fairer trial. And the judge is going to rule next week. Did you think your article was inaccurate and full of untruths, legal and factual? No, no, I, I'm. Uh, I mean, I, as soon as I saw the filing, uh, of course, when when uh, respectable attorneys, um, prosecutors are calling your story slanted, you can have concern. Uh, I read what they wrote. I immediately showed it to our general counsel and my editors. And um, long story short, we're 100% comfortable with our story. Uh, unfortunately... The, the prosecutors and the daughters, for that matter, wouldn't talk to us. But we have reams, um, we have seen reams of documents that uh, essentially uh, spell out their perspective and in contemporaneous ways, not in ways where people are telling you now things that happened three or four months ago, but. You know, things that were written down while this was happening sure. which are, um, I think, more, more reliable. Well, I didn't ask because I think that it's full of uh, oh, that's, untruth. That's fine. Um, I, you know, the story um, in the final week before it ran was uh, a nightmare of fact-checking just because there's so many facts and it's adversarial. And people, obviously, obviously Henry Rayhines and the prosecutors disagree. I think the daughters disagree. And there's a number of 
There's sure. just a lot of facts. You know, it's a 4,600 word story. So, and so I, that was an intense process to make sure I got got it all right. And uh, the prosecutor's contentions, uh, notwithstanding, nobody else uh, has said anything was wrong, which is unusual. And I also haven't. And this surprises me. Um, I also haven't gotten any email or seen any response. And I, I could miss it because it's out there in the ether um, where somebody just said, come on, this guy's a rapist. Sure. It's just not... I, I haven't seen it yet. Not, maybe it's out there. But not... not I, it was there before my story ran. Out in, in Iowa, there are some anonymous posters calling Henry some some bad names um, maybe rightfully so if he's convicted but um, I haven't seen it in response to my story is this um this isn't the sort of story you've done a lot of in your career is it like sex and dementia sex and dementia no um, well last year was the first time I'd ever I think the first time I'd ever written a story that involves sex directly um so no, I've but I've written about you know I'm a sort of jack of all trades, and master of none. I, I mean I had beats twenty years ago uh, where I covered the same subject you know on a, on a ongoing basis. But since about 1999, so 15 years ago, I haven't had a beat. And it, and for a number of years in the middle of that period, I was a bureau chief, so I wasn't writing very much. Right, helping other folks write for the Wall Street Journal. But yeah, I'm all over the place. I mean, this year, just this year alone, I've written about um, coffee, uh, you know, Starbucks coffee. Um, there are two gentlemen, billionaires in Detroit who run two of the largest pizza chains, who were founded two of the largest pizza chains uh, in the what, world. Was that Little Caesars? Little Caesars and Domino's, yeah. Um, and... I wrote about uh, Whirlpool and Procter and Gamble, and uh, since I've been at Bloomberg, I've written about hockey sticks and tractors and meat. A couple of meat stories. So I'm all over the place. And most most of the time, when I start a story, I'm a blank sheet. I don't know anything about right. or very little about uh, a topic, and I dive in and do my best. It's a good way to start, isn't it? Yeah, well, it has its advantages and disadvantages. Um, it's it can be a very good way to start because um, you generally will have an open mind. You know, most of these stories they're not stories where, like this one, where you have two sides that don't like each other and it's, it's an adversarial situation. But you know, most of the stories I do are you're just simply taking readers somewhere they can't go themselves. And explaining how something works, you know, why why would Starbucks buy a farm in Costa Rica? And it has a lot to do with with um, changing the way coffee is is. That's uh, uh, where I'm, I'm looking for changing the way harvested coffee, not not the way it's harvested, but, but the way it's actually born, so that it can be resistant to fungus that has. Devastated some of the harvests in Central and South America in the past several years, 
And so then you get into explaining to people, this is how your coffee cup gets to you. So that's, that's not a terribly adversarial story, right. controversial, but potentially very interesting. And, and there's a lot of bar readers drink coffee. So most of my stories uh, really aren't are like that, but now and then you get into a situation where you're writing about something where people disagree, and you know, then you've got to be careful um, to try to be as fair to everybody concerned. Um, so it has its advantages in that way. It's a disadvantage is you, you don't know anything and you gotta you gotta learn it and sometimes you know you end up learning a lot of stuff that at the end you go, I didn't really need to know any of that stuff. And it didn't even <laughs> inform you know, it'll inform your story in small ways, but you know, that's the risky take. You know, there when I came into the Henry Rahan story, I, I wasn't a blank sheet, I knew something. Um perhaps dangerous knowledge of the issue of consent and dementia. And I, I, know, I knew a lot of people, and I, I met more, at least over the phone or email, um, who are experts in this field. And so that gave me somewhat of an advantage. But you don't want to come in thinking you're an expert or you're, you're going to make a mistake. And I certainly didn't and don't think I'm an expert in this. I let other people, sure. experts actually, talk about it. How long have you got in news now? How many years? I've been a reporter professionally for 35 years as of October. I think it was it's either the 4th or the 8th I have to look. <laughs> How do you judge that? First first pay stop or something? Yeah, well I started at my, my first, I mean I, I, I worked at the uh, campus newspaper at, at Notre Dame and I worked at the alumni magazine there and I had an internship but my my first day on the job for you know full time pay uh, newspaper was at the Brighton Argus in Brighton, Michigan. Just it's about forty minutes outside of Detroit. And that was in October of nineteen seventy nine. It was a quite a long time ago. Quite a long time ago, yeah. Were you um? Well, why'd you get into it? Uh, I always wanted to be a writer since I was a kid. I liked to write when I was a kid. Uh, my mother encouraged me, uh, bought me a lot of books. I liked to read, and that led to writing. And I always thought, you know, I'm going to be a novelist. And then I got into Notre Dame, and I figured, well, I'll go to law school. And then after about three years of school, I thought, I don't want to go to school anymore. I'm tired of it. And so I didn't want to go to law school. And I was working for the newspaper, and a couple of my advisors there said, you know, there's newspapers, and it was like the only thing I could do would make a living writing because I didn't have the skill or the smarts or the experience to write fiction, you know, serious fiction. So I started at the Argus, and from there to the uh, Kalamazoo Gazette, to the Detroit News, to Washington, to the Wall Street Journal, and then the Bloomberg. Well, the Journal in Chicago, and then the Bloomberg. See, and I don't necessarily want to jump around a ton, but I do that sometimes. But is there um, is there uh, anything that taught you how to be a journalist? I or think, anyone? Well, I think it's... You can go to school for it, but most people, younger people who ask me, should I get a journalism degree? I say, you know, if you want to, but I don't think you need it. I think it's good to get a, uh, 
a good, well-rounded education that makes you curious and intelligent and uh, you know somebody who's seeking knowledge, whatever area it is. But I will say, you know, the way to learn how to be a journalist is to be a journalist. So my advice to young people is always get clips, do stories, whether they're video clips, audio clips, printed clips, online clips. You know, get out and cover stories. And you know, if you got a little, if you're uh, in between semesters, you're at home for the summer. There's a little paper in your town. Go to the paper and say, "I'll work for free," so you can learn how to interview people um, and how to assemble lots of stuff into smaller. Uh, packages for readers learn how to write learn how to write fast and I you know I, I can't think of any other way to do it than to do it so and of course I've had plenty of great teachers along the way and, and people who helped and encouraged me and, and showed me how to do things so you know I, I'm, I'm blessed and lucky that way were you good at it when you started I was okay. I was good enough to keep my job. Uh, uh, I would hate to go back. I, I have some of the stories uh, that I wrote back then. I, you know, some of them are probably pretty bad, over overdone or underdone, or both. I think that's interesting. You know, where sometimes you know, like you're young and you're trying to move up so you overwrite a story about a cat caught in a tree or something yeah was that ever you yeah I had this one story at I was at um, well the Brighton Argus bought some papers the, the company that owned the Argus bought some other papers and I ended up writing for one of them which was just down the street for the Argus the Livingston County Press one night in the summer this would have been 1980 pretty sure yeah 1980 um, some guy took a couple hostage in their house with a gun on a, on a Wednesday night. So our paper was already, it was a weekly, it was put to bed. So I went out to this hostage taking that night. And this was my first, like, like the TV cameras were all there. And, you know, these people's lives were, were in danger. And they, it ended up, the siege ended fine. And the guy didn't kill anybody. But then I spent the next four or five days reconstructing this in this sort of Tom Wolfian detail <laughs> and wrote this overwritten story that at the time I was very proud of. Um, but I wouldn't really want to go back and, and look at it. I, you know, I'm sure there were some good things about it. But, but you know, I was young. And nobody told me, don't do it. Well, by the time I turned it in, the poor editors, you know, they just had to get it in the paper. They didn't have time to <laughs> mess around with it. Because they wanted to report it, even though it was, it was a week old, but it was written like a feature story. I think it was probably a thousand words long, which was a huge story for for that newspaper. Why does that stick out to you? Well, you asked for a story that was overwritten, and that one you know, definitely sticks out. I didn't have a lot of stories like that. I just, you know, mostly I covered school board, city council to some degree, and I wrote some sports. You know, you're cranking 13, 14 stories. Sure. Um, you know, you'd write them all on Monday and Tuesday, and I was writing headlines and doing occasional editorials. And it was great training, and it was great fun. And the guy who hired me, Rich Pearlberg, is still a close friend. That's uh, 
No, that's that's pretty cool. Um, the the uh, the the you know turn you know people don't like turning you know cranking them out when they're cranking them out, but you do learn a ton. Oh yeah, definitely and, you do, and and it's that kind of thing that makes you you know, especially in today's journalism where you've got to write fast and and try to do it in a clear and simple way and accurate, not just run out there. You don't you don't want your your uh, reputation to be always right or always first frequently right. You want to be right all the time. Right. Sometimes that sacrifices being first. Um, so yeah, doing that prepared me for lots of stuff later in my career where I had to write uh, really fast, both as a reporter and as a bureau chief. I mean, when you're cranking and you have to write your own headlines, doesn't that force you to to have an understanding of what your story is, you know, and what what it is in a nutshell, so that readers can understand. Well, it too. right, yeah. Which probably helps you later on become an editor or a bureau chief, right? Like if you don't have that skill of understanding what a story is, uh, you probably can't help mold stories, can you? Well, I've known some editors who <laughs> didn't appear to have all that much in the way of knowing understanding stories, but. Most of the ones that I've worked with directly have been brilliant at it, and it was because they were uh, good at being reporters. You know, really good editors are really good at that, seeing this is what the story's really about. And sometimes when you're a reporter, when you're reporting a story, you know, you know so much, you're stuck in the middle of it, you can't see the forest from the trees, to use a cliche. And the editor, who has some distance, she says... Well, here it is, Greg. This is isn't this what the story's about? And you go, Yes. And that's when, you know, the editor takes you by the hand and leads you into the story and in the end it's your name on it, so you get the credit. Right. Um, you know, editors like that are, are gifts. Yeah. Um and yeah, and I mean that's why you do have an editor too, right? And it's not just you write it and it goes in the paper, is that there's somebody there to Right to help make sure it's the very best thing it could right. possibly be. And, yeah, and my editor on this uh, rape story, John Bretcher, who's an old friend, was my uh, was the page one editor when I was at the Wall Street Journal, and uh, our careers went elsewhere, and then now we're back working together on occasional stories at Bloomberg. John's just great at asking the right questions and prodding you to... to uh, crystallize what it is you're trying to say and throw away stuff you don't really need. Um, editors, you know, one thing editors do that uh, that isn't often recognized is to liberate writers. To, to liberate you to write things that you're worried you probably shouldn't get into and also to liberate you to let go of things that you've you, know, you reported the hell out of the history of the Telecommunications Regulatory Act. And the editor says, we don't need more than a sentence on that. And this new great relief lifts from your shoulders because you're in the middle of the story trying to wrestle with this. And uh, that's, editors are liberators as well as you know, perpetrators. Sometimes they're perpetrators too. Yes, they are. But, uh, so I think, though, I think uh, I wanted to ask you about 9-11. You reported 9-11, right? Um, yeah, I worked on that with, you know, 
Yeah. of hundreds. What yeah. was that like? Um, well, the first day, September 11th, I was in the uh, newsroom, the Washington Bureau of the Wall Street Journal. It's about 40 of us in that newsroom. And on Tuesday, this was a Tuesday morning, and Tuesday mornings we had a staff meeting uh, every Tuesday. And occasionally we had guest speakers. And on this particular Tuesday, we were going to hear from a guy named, I believe his name was Jim Berger. And he was a, uh, had worked in the State Department for President Clinton as a terrorism expert, which was just, you know, ironic. And I was sitting in the newsroom getting ready to go to this 9.15 a.m. meeting, and I saw some people across the way looking up at these TVs, and I wandered over there, and there were these two buildings, and one of them, there was flames, smoke coming out of them. And we didn't really know what was going on, and then you see this plane, which turned out to be the second plane. It didn't look like a jet, it was tiny in the, on, the, on the picture. And then you see this other explosion. You, you don't see the jet slamming into... Uh, I guess it was the North Tower was second, I think. Um, but I was standing next to Bob Greenberger, who covered the State Department for us, and he immediately says, this is terrible. And so then the meeting was canceled, and we all ended up in the corner office of our bureau chief, Alan Murray, who was trying to raise New York and couldn't get anybody there. And so while we were there in the office, one of my colleagues, I think it was Neil King, he got a phone call while we're all, there's like 20 of us in this office, and Neil says, this is Ted Brightus, another of our reporters, he's driving in and he just saw a plane crash into the Pentagon. This is spooky. We're not hearing it from TV, it's like, it was, I don't know, this, the effect of having somebody tell us this directly. Sure. And then some planes flew over, uh, we were only a couple blocks from the White House, and some jets flew right over our bureau and Murray jumped up and said what the fuck is that and you know we were all on edge and actually it was our own plane scrambling to you know protect the, the capital and uh, from then on we were really in the safest city in the whole world but um, that day uh, what I remember most clearly about it was these two waves of emails um, the first wave was early in the afternoon and, and it almost crashed our servers because so many people were emailing at the same time within the Wall Street Journal um, empire and a lot of those emails were I'm okay, you know, they were New York people I'm okay, here's where I am, how can I help and then there was a second wave of emails that were memos from reporters who had gotten off bicycles gotten off ferries, gotten out of cabs, gotten off the subway, and immediately went to work doing what they didn't have any editors telling them what to do. Our editors were largely incommunicado for various reasons um, because of the, you know, the breakdown of the telecom structure there. And they just went and did it. And you know, I, I was uh, tasked with pulling together the main story about what happened, just what happened. There were all sorts of uh, incredible stories on our front page, which is right there, um, that day. Uh, but uh, So I, I basically had to rewrite the news story, and I had 
I mean, I could have thrown away that whole story and written a second one with all the stuff that we had no room for. Then ended up in the cutting floor. Today, of course, all of that would have been going. Right. We'd have just been just editing pieces, just one after another, chunks of these these amazing little anecdotes we were getting would just be going online, along with photos and video. Uh, and you know, I, I don't know. Would we have written this? One three thousand word narrative that ties it all together. Maybe um, we wouldn't have ha- absolutely had to. Some readers would appreciate it. Certainly in print they would, but online I don't know. But yeah, so I, I did that, and then the next morning I came in and I had just finished prior to seven eleven or nine eleven. I said seven because it ran on September seventh. Uh, a project I've been working on about prisons in Mississippi and so I was sort of free and I went into Alan Murray's office and said what do you want me to do and he said I don't want you on the news we're going to get a second track going so we have one really great big narrative at some point when it's ready and so we recruited Phil Kuntz who's at Bloomberg now and Elaine Cooper who is at the New York Times and a couple other reporters, and we set out to write a story that, um, how did this come about? Let's see, Alan said, you know, there's, at the time, people thought there were like 5,000 people dead, and it turned out to be about half that, but I, uh, it reminded me of a story that Detroit Free Press did in 1967 about the race riots in Detroit, where three reporters reconstructed how each of the 43 people killed were killed. And it was pulled together by a guy who would go on to be an Oscar-winning screenplay writer, Kurt Ledke, and he wrote Absence of Malice, among other things. And He's a legend. Yeah, Yeah. sort of, yeah. And uh, Ledke, he was like 30 years old when he did this. He pulled the story together, and and it was a gripping narrative, but it also showed what was going on, which was armed white police officers were killing unarmed black people and they won a Pulitzer. So I just mentioned this to Alan, and he's like, you know, it's uh, it's 3,000 people. I said, it's kind of like, what about like Hiroshima, the John Hersey New Yorker article that became a book about six people who, who died in the blast at Hiroshima in August of 1945. And, and Alan then equated it to um, a Thornton Wilder book um, about five people who die on a bridge. I should know this. But uh, the bridge over Hopefully he's not San... Uh, well, don't worry. He's not now. Um, and... So we just went to the five of us, ended up in New York City, and each found a character and wrote about where they were just prior to the attacks and what happened to them. And it was called uh, Five Lives, and uh, that was quite an experience writing about those five people and five reporters. And uh, Who'd you get? I wrote about a woman named Diane Murray who uh, worked for Aon, an insurance company, in the South Tower. 
and she helped a couple other guys get out of there. And she lived. She survived. She was the only one of the five people who survived. And the way the story was written, um, we, we wrote it in such a way that readers wouldn't know who's going to survive. And it cross-cut it between the five characters. Um, and they, you know, they were all uh, different uh, stories that overlapped in ways. Um, and it was quite, quite a project. But uh, it ran one month later. Really proud of it. Was that um? That must be. I, I think. Um, I mean, I've talked to people who've covered all sorts of big things, but that's that's the biggest thing, you know, that's happened in oh, my lifetime and probably certainly, yours. Certainly, yeah, that's certainly the biggest story I've worked on, and probably the biggest story since Pearl Harbor. Is that one of uh, the single story? Is that one of the things you're proudest of in your career? Well, for me personally. Let's set that aside. I think my proudest moment, I doubt the celebrity eclipse was that afternoon and seeing what my colleagues did. Because these people, um, the pundits who like to opine about the media, uh, I wonder if, like, John Hilsenrath would have gotten on a bicycle and ridden it back into Ground Zero, risking his life uh, to do his job. I doubt most of them have ever done anything and so I was proud of all of our effort in Washington and all over the country and it's particularly in New York where it was extremely dangerous to, to be doing what they were doing um, so I was proud to be part of that as far as me I still my favorite story ever was about a, a black lieutenant in World War II who helped save a, a boy who was when they met he was at Dachau right at the end of the, the European war and uh, the two guys, I met those two gentlemen, you know, my, you know, 50, 60 years later, and uh, they're the two most extraordinary people I ever met. What's that, sir? So they, they, he saved them? John, John Withers was uh, a black gentleman from Greensboro, North Carolina, which was Jim Crow, very highly segregated when uh, John grew up there. And he wanted, his goal was to become a professor and teach um, somewhere in the Midwest. The first black uh, master's grad, graduate from the University of Wisconsin, and then he enlisted in World War II. And along, uh, you know, during that period, he saw that he could uh, use the GI Bill, which was a short, short for legislation that said soldiers who come out of the war will pay for their college education. So he wanted to get his PhD and become a professor. And he was the head of an all-black supply convoy. And in the waning months of the war, uh, just after VE Day, he ended up at Dachau. And they camped there, and these two Polish-Jewish boys uh, in their teens, emaciated, uh, who had been at Dachau showed up at their camp. Withers didn't see them at first, and his men took them in. So after a couple weeks, he got wind that these two boys were there. Well, this was in uh, serious uh, violation of military regulations because 
they could carry disease, it would spread through the army, they could be spies, they could be dangerous. It was just, it was clear he wasn't supposed to harbor these refugees. And if somebody found out, he would certainly be discharged dishonorably, which would mean he would lose his rights to the GI Bill. So he had these boys brought in front of him, and we saw them. He took pity, so he hid them. He joined with his men and hired them. And after six months or so, it was okay. And they stayed together for a year and a half all over Europe, and they got to be close. And he called one of them Peewee, and the other, they called him Solomon, because their names were these long Polish names, soldiers had trouble saying. And then they parted ways in 1946. And that was that. Except that John kept telling his sons about Peewee and Solomon for years after that. He's like these two long-lost uncles. And his son, John II, in the 90s, worked at the State Department. Followed his, oh, By the way, John Withers became a professor. The first black professor at the University of Detroit. And then he got into the Foreign Service and he traveled all over the world. And uh, his son followed in his, one of his sons followed in his footsteps and was in the Foreign Service, worked for the State Department, and he took a sabbatical to try to find Pee Wee and Solomon. And Solomon had died in Israel of cancer in the 90s. And Pee Wee was a successful businessman in Hartford. And so John and Pee Wee reunited. And then things happened in their life. This changed both of them afterwards. So I wrote about this in 2003. Unbelievable story. I mean, forget about how well I did it. It was just right. unbelievable. By right. noon that morning, I had 200 emails from all of them. What is that, a Wall Street Journal story? Wall Street Journal, yeah. And uh, 200 emails back in those days, that wasn't as much of an email time as it is now. Well, so you know, people emails. are less about email now. Um, yeah, I guess you'd be getting tweets. It's tonight. more like, you know, a story like that today would go viral. Because, you know, I'm, I'm leaving out some stuff that that uh, really got people going. But um, it was a phenomenal story. And John died four or five years ago now. I got to see him right before he died. Great, great man. Great man. How'd you get on that? It was a gift. My friend Tom Hamburger, who worked for us then, he now works for the LA Times, great investigative reporter, great guy. He had sat next to Withers at some family dinner. They were connected, like six degrees of separation. And John told him, Tom told my friend Tom this, a little bit of the story, and Tom came to me. My role then was write for page one and help other people write for page one. And Tom came to me to see if I would shepherd the story. And we didn't know that much about it at the time. But I pitched it to our bosses, and they said, great. And then nothing happened until one day uh, the bureau chief, then Jerry Side, called me in, and he said, Tom is going to be covering the White House. He's not going to have time to do this story. You know, would you want to do it? And then I made sure with Tom I didn't want to steal the story. And he graciously handed it over. So, you know, it was just luck. That's... Uh that's very cool. It sounds like you've worked with some pretty extraordinary people. Oh, yeah. The 9-11 story still is very touching. Uh, five lives. 
Yeah. Well, no, I mean, what you said about your colleagues oh, was, going back yeah. and... That's amazing. That was an amazing day. I didn't really appreciate it until a couple of years later. Sure. What those people did. Well, so if people want to find you, uh, what's the best way to find you? Uh, Brian Gruley at Gmail. I have a website, BrianGruley.com, but... And, and my name's spelled with a Y, so B-R-Y-A-N-G-R-U-L-E-Y, but... And Twitter? Yeah, same thing, at Brian Gruley. Um, I'm on Facebook, Brian Gruley. My website, I haven't touched it in a long time because it's an author website because I write novels as well on the side. Well, what you, what you said, I was thinking earlier when you were talking about being young and I don't know quite what the phrase was, but you weren't ready to write novels then or something? I, I just didn't have, I didn't know shit about the world. You know? <laughs> and, and some people say I still don't, but I knew a lot less then than I do now. And I, I just, you know. But now takes, you're doing it. It takes a lot of skill and stamina to write a novel. It, it really does. It's hard. It's Forget about whether you're a great writer or not, or whether I am or not. It's just the organizational challenges of keeping everything straight when you're, you know, it's one thing to write a 20-inch story or a 100-inch story. But you can, you, know, you can print it out. You can see it all right there. The novel is just all over the place. And you're trying to remember things you wrote six months ago. Um, I mean, I have methods of doing that. But I think my journalism career has re- had really prepared me for writing novels because it made me an observer of... of not just seeing things, but hearing them, smell, taste, touch, you know, that kind of detail that brings readers to rural Iowa or Dachau. Um, they, that translates very well into novel. And fortunately for me, um, I had bosses who let me write narratives. And whether they were, you know, I'm talking about arcs, you know, start here and go through a second act and culminate in a third, you know, in a, some sort of synthesis, whether they're funny 20-inch stories or something like the story I wrote for Bloomberg last last week, um, that, that writing those stories over and over and over again, these narratives help me do the same in a novel. So. Well, people can and should check that out, too. Absolutely, they should. And, yes. uh, <laughs> and uh, I very much appreciate you taking time to chat. Thanks. Great to be here.